Lord willing, and um, he's, um, we're all thankful for that. They'll remove the kidney, and that will be set up. Hopefully, um, the appointment will be set up this Monday or sometimes soon as possible. Uh, but he, he wanted me to, and the, okay, these are his words, not mine. He said, I want you to tell everyone I'm very thankful for the prayers, your encouragement, and I'm not kidding around. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, you know, two weeks ago, we, we, I think it was two weeks ago, um, things blend as you grow older. We talked about, uh, what, what we, we talked about prayer and what we pray for. What, what's our desire? What, what's, what do we ask for? Ask anything and it'll be given to you. And it really came, of course, came to uh, bear in our, in our lives. And, uh, I said at that point that what the scripture is saying is what we really desire, what we really want is faith and love. We want our faith to grow in our lives and we want love to grow in our lives. And of course, many of you have gone through similar experiences with cancer and other, other things, uh, other struggles in your lives. And so you come to the, that point and you say, well, what do I really desire in this? And, of course, we desire healing. We desire emotional stability and, you know, as we struggle through these things. But it's encouraging to me to see in you and in Matthew and Colleen and others a growing faith, a growing love in the midst of these trials. I think it was last night I was with uh, Matthew and he said, it was either last night, again, things blend. <laughs> it was sometimes this week. And he said, you know, before this happened, my view toward God was kind of like this. And he put his hands out and kind of like, it's out here. I mean, God's there, the Lord's there. and But, you know, there's distractions in life all around. And he said, and what this has done is this kind of focus it right in on him. And, you know, that's faith. That's growing faith. And so really that's what we desire as we struggle through these things in our lives, a growing faith and love growing in our lives. And, um, and that's true. We do appreciate your prayers uh, during this time. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. And I've called this run the test. We're going we're to run a test this morning. But be, before we get into chapter 4, I've got to make a few comments on chapter 3. What a marvelous chapter. I don't even know how long we've been in this chapter, but it's a marvelous chapter. Little chapter. And I want to just briefly go back to remind us, because it's all tied together, as Jim was just saying, this is all tied together, some of the things that we've discovered as we looked at chapter 3. John begins and ends this chapter speaking of our relationship with God. God and you, both. He, he talks about our relationship with each other. And this is vital, this is important, because... It, it addresses the question, how do you look at God? How do you view God? When you say the word God, when the word God comes to your mind, what comes to your mind? What's your view of him? And for some people, it's, he's cold and he's distant. He's just out there somewhere. He's wound up the universe and he's kind of let her, letting it run. Is he fearsome, malevolent God who's angry with you? That's how some people look at him. Does he hold the threat of punishment and hellfire over you if you disobey him? And I ask those questions because even though sometimes we're loath to be that blunt about it, many Christians go through their lives looking at God this way. 
And I would say that, as I reflected on that this week, that many Christians are more comfortable believing in a God who is to be feared than a God who is to be loved. We're motivated to do what is right and to avoid sin if we can be scared enough of God. And to be motivated by his love is kind of foreign to us. It's a weak concept. We think about it and it's just like, I don't, I don't know about that. More than once I've been asked or told or something that, you know, we haven't had a good sermon on hell in a while. <laughs> and the indication of that is this would be a good thing to do. And normally what this means is everyone else needs a good sermon on hell. Not me. <laughs> you know, things just aren't, we just need to straighten everyone up. Let's, let's emphasize it for a little while. And so, you know, as I, and, I, and I, I, I take those, when people talk to me, I take it seriously. I don't dismiss those things. But the value of preaching the scriptures, as I, I try to do in an expository way, going through the scriptures, is that we will stress what God stresses as we come through the scriptures. We'll study what God reveals to us as we go through it. And when we come to a passage on hell, I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to avoid it. Just like some of these other passages, I much rather avoid. They're difficult passages. They're hard to go through. They make me think. They make me work. They make me stay up to past midnight sometimes, looking at these things and trying to figure out what in the world is God trying to say in this passage. We'll deal with whatever we come to, verse by verse. One book I read recently, and I won't quote the author or anything, but he says this, and he's talking about difficult problems in the world today, difficult sin problems in the world. How do we deal with those things? And there's, there's so many. We can deal with this one here and this one here and that one there. And we can choose topically, uh, you know, whatever sin we're dealing with, sin problems in the world today or problems in the world today. And he says this is how we should do it. He says we will encourage our leaders to preach through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter that they might teach the whole counsel of God even the unpopular, and avoid riding hobby horses, even the popular ones. And really that's, I mean, that's, that, uh, whether you like it or not, that's how I approach this, this time. I want to just open up God's Word and let's see where it leads us rather than me telling you where I think we need to be led. Several times in this, as I said in this little letter, I would have been tempted to uh, skip over hard passages that are, Difficult to understand. But being committed to preach through this letter, I, I've been forced to deal with uh, difficult material sometimes. But it's what God places before us, and I believe there's a reason that he places that before us. And I think this is the best and healthiest way to preach. So what has God told us about himself? And I, I said all that to say this. What has God said about himself? Whether we like it or not, he said something about himself, and he said something about you. As a Christian, this letter was dealt, uh, 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 written to Christians. So the question is, well, what is he saying about himself? What is he saying about you? And it begins with one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. It's just, to me, this is one of my favorite. If I was to choose a favorite, this is in the top ten. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I like that translation. 
that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then I paraphrased it, and it's up on the screen. Think about this. The incredible out-of-this-world kind of love that the Father has lavished on us, that he called us his children. And that is what we actually are. Now, because we are his children, the world doesn't understand us. Why? It never, even, it never understood him either. The world doesn't understand Christians. The world never understood him. And so this, this passage, when we see, look what God, the Father, has done, lavished his love on us. And the, and the way he did it, he said, you're my child. You're my children. Not only should this give us great joy, it should give us great assurance of eternal life. It should motivate us not to sin when we realize who we are. Verse 3 says it this way. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, when we realize who God is and we realize what he's done for us and he realized what he's made us, what's the motivation? Just to drift through life and do what we want? No, here, here's what it does. When we have this hope that we will one day be like him, that we purify ourselves, we start cleaning up our lives just as he is pure. And all the way through verse 10, he shows this relationship with the father uh, and his child that is the true, pure, and godly motivation for us not to sin. Read, read through uh, 1 through 10, and you'll see this motivation. The motivation not to sin is he loves you. The motivation is not to sin is it's not who you are. You're his child. And this is not being soft on sin. It's not a weak approach. It's God's method. This is what God says. God doesn't control us by fear, but he promotes faith. That's what he wants. You get cancer. What does God want? Faith. Not fear. Oh, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? It's not fear. It's faith. That's what he wants. God doesn't scare us into obedience. He matures us into love. That's where he's leading us. And that's a longer road, I know, as far as results are concerned. You can control millions of people through fear and power. Hitler, Stalin, Paul Pot, Mayo, 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 On and on, many, many, many more. The results were quick. They were visible. Oh, those are the big names of history. What about in churches? Happens in churches, too. You get someone powerful enough, charismatic enough, he can make people do anything. But God wins your heart so he can save you, so he can empower you to grow, to mature, to be more like him. One heart at a time. One person at a time. And we say, it's just not effective. It's God's method. One person at a time. And then we get to verse 11. A new paragraph starts, but not a new concept. He ties this in. He ties his thoughts all the way back to chapter 1 at this point. He speaks of the gospel message. Read verse 11. This is the message we heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And so he ties this all the way back where in chapter 1 he says, this is the message. And he says, here's the good news. Here's the gospel message in a practical application. Here it is. Love one another. 
we would expect, here's the message. Here's the practical application. Honor God. Love God. Don't do this. Do this. But here's God's desire. God says, here's the, here, when, when I saved you, when I gave you my message, when I gave you my son, this is what I want. I saved you to love other people. And loving one another is the best expression of loving God. Guess what? In this chapter that we're getting into, chapter 4, John's going to talk about that. He says, you can't say I love God and you don't love your brother. We'll, get that. we'll, we'll be there in a few months. Loving one another is how we honor God. That's how we worship God. We change our lives. We see sinning. We weed out the things that we need to weed out in our lives. We remove the things that need to be removed. We add the things that need to be added to our lives when we love one another. And if you're really putting that into practice as we discover what love is, you'll find that's exactly what's happening. You have to take out sin in your life in order to love people. And he goes all the way through verse 17, illustrating this first negatively. He says, and don't be like Cain. Do not love like Cain. And then positively, he says, you love like Jesus. This is how you're supposed to love. He, he contrasts these because this is exactly what we do. We, we recognize many times that we do love like Cain. Well, it wasn't love. But that's how we treat other people. Instead of loving like Jesus, we murder our brothers and sisters in our hearts. With words, instead of laying down our lives for them. And we like to really, you know, we like to say, oh, it's laying down our lives, dying for one another. Oh, I die for you. Yeah, you, I, I don't believe you'll die for me if you don't take time with me or help when I need help. That's what's laying, that's laying down your life. He's not saying, oh, you know, if we're persecuted and we're all brought into a coliseum and, you know, we'll die for each other. And we know, ha-ha, that's never going to happen, or we think it's not. But in reality, he says, it's the everyday laying down your life. That's where love is shown. And that's what Jesus did every day of his life. Loving one another is not easy. Loving some is sometimes, but loving all isn't. I prefer to murder a few and love a few and ignore the rest. But then when I'm convicted that I'm guilty of that, when I look at my own heart and I say, you know, that's, that's really my heart. That's the way I act. That's the way I think. I want to murder a few people. I'm not talking about literal murder. You know that. I murder a few and I love a few and the rest I just kind of ignore. And I see that and I say, you know, I'm like Cain. I live like Cain sometimes instead of loving like Jesus. And I just want to quit. Just give up. What's the use? I mean, especially me. I'm a preacher. I can't get it right. What am I going to do? That's when God says, put into practice this love. Practice it. I know you're not good at it. God knows you're not good at it. You just keep on practicing it. And when you do that tempestuous heart of yours that's condemning you, I want you to know I'm greater than that. You're going to be at peace and you can rest in my love as you learn to love. That's verses 18 through 22. Let's read this next section here. Yeah. You see, when the love of God is put into practice in our lives, we enter into a growing relationship, a growing knowledge that we are authentically of the truth, truly of Christ. We, can then, we then can quieten our tempestuous hearts as we live in his presence, even at those times when our conscience rises up 
and points an accusing finger at every sin and inconsistency in our lives. For you see, God is far greater than our self-condemning hearts and transcends our human limitations. He knows and understands all. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing we serve a God like this. That's why I've said over and over, this is such good news that you don't believe it sometimes. It's so good that we can hardly believe it. God loves me that much. God can be that patient with me in my sins and my weaknesses and my inconsistency. Surely God is going to make me pay some way, somehow. And that's when it drives you to faith. It drives you to faith. You've got to believe that he's that good. Not that he, and not only that, you have to believe that his son was that good. His son was that good that he could take care of all these things. Is God so good that he can take care of you that's so bad? Or do you have to get good so that he'll take care of you? And God's message is this. I don't care how bad you are. You just come to me, I'll take care of it. I'll wash it all away. You need to believe that. Verse 23 says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's where he leads us. You've got to believe in him. You've got to put your faith in him. God explicitly commands this. Entrust yourself to the character of Jesus' son. Get your eyes off yourself. Place them on Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith. He's the Alpha and Omega. To use an illustration, he's the first runner in the relay and the last. And the ones in between. We just entrust ourselves to him. And if we fully grasp this, and I doubt if we'll ever fully grasp it, our joy will bubble over. We'll live lives that we're called to live. You know, we won't have to guilt people into being benevolent or evangelistic or compassionate or kind. We won't have to guilt people into getting jobs or being responsible or keeping their word. We won't have to guilt you into giving or or not gossiping or obeying your parents or loving your wives or being submissive to your husbands. You'll pay your debts. You won't get angry. You'll work for your boss as you would for the Lord. And our problem is this. We haven't shown people the Lord. We're more confident that fear and burning in hell will motivate us better than the love of God. And the reason is we don't have a clue about who God is and what he's done to save us. Let me take that back. We have a clue. And that's all we have. We just have a clue. And that's why we keep going back over and over. We've got to keep going back to who God is and who his son is. Over and over and over again. Because the more we see it, the more magnificent he is. The more wonderful he is. And the more we see that, the more we'll turn to him. And the more we'll lift him up. And Jesus says, you lift me up. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men. To you, to him. So he ends this chapter the way he began it. Your love, children of God, he says in verse 1. And then in verse 24, he says, And he lives, you live in him, and he lives in us. You know, if you believe that, if you really believe you're a child of God, I mean, really live that way. And you really believe and live as if he lives in you and he lives in us, us, both ways. (laughs) What happens? Joy. You don't sin. 
You know you have eternal life. Those are the three things that happen over and over. John brings this up. And so now we go into chapter, well, right the last, we know it by the Spirit He gave us. The result of the Spirit's life working in our, in our lives, we, his, He's working His will, His good will, His pleasure in our life. We experience the fruit of the Spirit to the degree that we trust Him. And then He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into this world. Now, the reason I've taken chapter 3 and brought you into chapter 4 is because in our minds we have a division there. There's a new chapter, a new thought. But when John wrote this, he just kept writing. There was no verses, there's no chapter. So you got to you got to, the thoughts continue to go. He changes gears a little bit. But in here he says two things. He's going to show you who you are again. And he's going to tell you what you do. And he's going to tell you in a negative way and a positive way. And we're going to look at this as quickly as we can. First of all, it says who you are. John uses this word in, in our, my translation. It says dear friends. In some of your translations, it says beloved. And I don't think this word is, is, is an accident. John uses this. He, put, he puts this out to us. And that word beloved is the better translation, I believe. But it's a quaint word. It's an old-fashioned word. And maybe if it's a word that you're used to, it just shows you how old you are. <laughs> you know, you are sorry about that. Uh, you know, the beloved. You know, we, we just don't use that anymore. Us young people. Us young people, right? I'm trying to wake him up over there. Us young people don't use that anymore. But what is what he's saying? You are beloved. You're loved by someone. And most kind of give you the idea that he's saying, John is saying, you're my beloved young children of the faith. And it's true. John loved them. That, that's true. But more importantly, I think the, when you look at the entire letter, he stresses their love of God. And that's how I like to translate it. Loved ones of God. He's reminding them again. And six times he does this. Six times he says, loved of God. He keeps reminding them. I, I don't think he just needed an extra word to put in there. He's trying to remind people, you are loved of God. And he ties this often to our relationship with, with God and our relationship with each other as we, as we read these, how, how they come together. He's lo- you're loved of God, so start acting like it. Think like, the God, like God. Start thinking the God of love. And in this case, he gives you a strong negative. This is how a loved of God person thinks. He doesn't do this, and he does do this. Okay, so are you loved of God? Yes. If you're a Christian, you are loved of God. And so there's two things that we need to do. One thing you don't do and one thing you do do. The first thing, what you do, what you don't. Don't believe every spirit. All right, I'm, I'm going to take a chance of getting, of hurting some feelings here. I probably already have anyway. So anyway, the young, and I know most of our young people are here, so I, I know there's some over here. The young both physically and spiritually, are often naive. And I see it. get old, old, old people always do that. <laughs> and I want you to know, I remember being naive. I'm not putting you down. It's not a bad thing. It's just it's part of spiritual maturity. I'll tell you a story. I'll embarrass myself, okay? Show you how naive, one, one time I was very naive, 19 years old. I was, traveling, I was on a 40-hour bus ride. Oh, uh, yeah, like that. Don't be naive. 
40-hour bus ride drive from Searcy, Arkansas to Grand Forks, North Dakota. I was in my 30th-something hour. We came into uh, Minneapolis, and I walked out. I was, you know, I was tired. Uh, had to change buses there. And as I walked in the, in the uh, terminal, this man suddenly stood in front of me. And he said, hey, you got a quarter? And I'm like, what? And he says, you got a quarter? And he said, I just need a quarter to put into the, the uh, locker here. I've got one. I need two. And uh, I started, okay. And I, I have some pennies. I have nickels. I mean, I'm a poor college student at the time. He said, you don't, have a, you don't have a quarter? Give me a dollar. Just give me a dollar. That'd be fine. Five dollars? You got five dollars? You have 20? I mean, before I knew it, I'm looking at him. I'm like, 20 bucks? <laughs> you just said a quarter, you know? And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was just like dumb, all right? I was naive. I had no clue. And suddenly I feel a finger in my arm. And I look down, and this massive finger is in my arm, and it, he turns me around. And a guy about this tall and about this wide turns me around with a finger, and then he brings it up to my face. And I think he said, boy, he might have said son, whichever, both are true. Boy, you're in the big city now. When people like this bother you, there's a police post right there. And he walked away. And I'm just like, whoa, you know. I mean, I got turned around with a finger. <laughs> that guy's powerful. And the other guys started chasing him and yelling at him and everything. I ducked into the bathroom, you know, and hid out there for about an hour. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. I mean, I'm naive. I mean, literally, if that guy had not saved me, I would have been poor. Oh, sure, I got 20, yeah, 20, 40 bucks, yeah, 45, out of whatever I had. I would have been poor. Naive. We become a Christian. We're excited about our new heart. We're excited about our new faith. You've been here before. Some of you are here right now. You have this new love, and you're, you're excited about it, you want to share it with everyone else, and you go out and you're sharing it with everyone else, and someone punches you in the face, spiritually speaking. Maybe really. 1 John 3, verse 13 says this, Don't be surprised if the world hates you. And young, naive Christians are. And old, naive Christians are, too. That's why he writes it to us. He says, don't believe every time Dick and Harry that comes along and they say wonderful things to you. And you just kind of go like, don't, don't do that. But test the spirits, he says. And here he says, I, I have to ask the question, well, what are the spirits? What's the spirits he's talking about? In the last lesson, we talked about the spirit of God. And I stated there is not some mystical, weird kind of feeling. It's not saying I felt the Holy Spirit. I felt the leading of the spirit. I felt like God was guiding me. That's not John's point here. John is saying we know that God lives in us by the fact that his spirit is expressing his fruit in our life. When he expresses his fruit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, etc. When he, when he expresses that in our life, we know the spirit is living in us. We know God's spirit is living in us as we mature spiritually. Now he says, don't listen. Don't be taken in by nice-sounding, persuasive people. That's the spirits that he's talking about. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, have nothing to do with godless myths. Don't listen to godless myths. Don't listen to old, old wives' tales. Ephesians 5, 6 says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Same concept here. And just as God's spirit is expressed in our lives by the fruit of his spirit, the world's spirits are expressed in the life of the world. In a moment, if you're asleep, 
I want you to wake up. John's not speaking of mystical happenings. He's not speaking of Ouija boards and seances and voodoo. And he's talking about very practical daily living. And this is where you need to listen to this part. What do you do? Test the spirits. He says, test the spirits. How do you do that? What does it mean? This word means on every occasion that it comes up for you to test the spirit, test it. That's the, the tense of the verb there. You do it whenever the occasion rises. And so I ask myself, well, when does this occasion arise? Every day. I'm telling you, this happens every day of your lives. The spirit must be tested because they're promoted by false prophets. These people don't walk around with a T-shirt that says false prophet on them. They sound, they act, they look like true prophets. Their reasoning sounds good. They touch your emotions. They gather the crowds. They lift your spirits. They draw you away from God without you even being aware of it. Let me tell you where some of these prophets may be. One, you, you could be right here. Yeah, we all say, well, it's preachers, teachers. But in your school, your teachers at school, your professors, the news station, your favorite actor, your favorite actress, all can be false prophets, and often they are. How do you test these things? How do you, you're getting all this information that's coming in from, your, from teachers, from the media, from the radio, from movies, wherever. It's just coming at you all the time. And how do we test that? How do we know what they're saying and promoting and teaching and pushing their agenda, whatever they're doing, me included? How do you know whether it's of God or of the world? You do it by the Word of God. It's, it's not a, I'll go and pray for an hour and, and God will tell me. It's not that. It's right here. The Word of God. And there's passages here. I have, uh, we're not going to read these, but Romans 12, 1 and 2 basically says this. As you change the way you think, then you can test things and see what the perfect will of God is. And he tells you how to change your mind by the Word of God. You train yourself by God's Word. Training, that's in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 7. Uh, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, training, uh, teaching, correcting, rebuking, tra and training in righteousness so that the person of God, the man of God, can know, know his perfect will. Word of God, Hebrews uh, 4. The Word of God is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides soul and spirits, joints and merit. He says, and it judges what? The attitudes... Thoughts and attitudes, thoughts and of the heart. You're going through life. You don't know what's going on. Things are hitting you all the time. You don't even know when they're hitting you. And the Word of God can focus you, and you can say, oh, that's right, and that's wrong. You test it that way. You can know whether a spirit is of the world or, or, or is of God by testing it by the Word of God. That's how we do it. And here's the thing. If you don't know the Word of God, if you haven't been trained in righteousness then you're going to be duped by the spirits of the world over and over. You're not even going to know it. Let me give you some very practical. Okay, this is the time, this is the time to wake up. Very practical. Nitty-gritty. Nothing mysterious. Let's look at a few. 
just to give you an idea. Work. The spirit of the world says this. You've heard this. You're on your job, and you do so much for that job, and you're not appreciated like you should be. And so you deserve a little time on the phone during work hours. David uh, Smith and Greg Rigney taught a class in the auditorium on work uh, last Wednesday. And he was bringing out, and they both were bringing this out, but David did it. He said, this is what the, he, this is my words, not his, but this is basically what he was saying. This is what the world says. And then he would turn to the Bible and say, and this is what the Bible says. And this is what the world says. And this is what the Bible says. You know, I, it doesn't matter that the boss has so many of these things laying around. It doesn't matter if I take one. That's what the world, that's the spirit of the world. And you're in the people around you say, yeah, everyone does it. It's okay. It's okay to take whatever. That's fine. He'll never miss it. The boss will never miss it. It's a big company. It's just Walmart. They can afford a whatever that you take. And the Spirit of God says this, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. He says, you serve, you, and this is a work passage, by the way, chapter 6. He says, you work like you're working for the Lord, not for Walmart. Not for Angels Island Coffee. Not for whoever. That was a plug, wasn't it? <laughs> you work like you're working for God, like the Lord's working there with you. Not like you're working for someone else. Spirit of God. Spirit of the world. Do you see what I'm saying? How you're test, you have to test the Spirit? Because you're getting hit with this all the time. I had to do this. Oh, we got extra time here. Let, you know, just whatever. You can steal time. You can steal material. You can steal whatever. That's fine. Take another example. Prejudice of any kind. The Spirit of the world. There's prejudice in all spheres of our lives. We hear it all the time. Of course, there's racial prejudice, social prejudice, between the sexes, economic, on and on and on. Spirit of the world tells you all sorts of things. I heard one brother say something like this. That, let's see how I can say this without being too, a certain race at church here will be all lovey-dovey to a certain race here at church. And then they'll go home and they'll talk bad about that race. Put whatever race you want to in there. I don't know to what degree that's true. I don't know if that's true in your life or not. That's the spirit of the world. Spirit of the world says that's fine. Racial prejudice is fine. I read an article <coughs> the other day that was just, I mean, just kind of like it was like a slap in the face. It said, if you're white, and I can say this because I'm white, I think if you're white and you're and you're not racially prejudiced, okay, that proves that you're racially prejudiced. Yeah, say what? <laughs> All right, it, and it is very, you know, it, it it basically said by not being racially prejudiced, you're actually displaying your racial prejudice. And I was like, okay, uh, if I'm racially prejudiced, that's bad. And if I'm not racially prejudiced, I'm, that's bad. 
what am I supposed to do? Galatians 5. Let me just read this to you. Because, see, it's things like that. We read it and we're naive and we go, oh, well, guess I am. Guess what? This is what the Spirit of God says. Galatians 5. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. That's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God said there is no racial prejudice. There's no racial differences. You don't distinguish yourself socially. You don't dist- if you sit there and Google, oh, this, this rich person's coming in. Oh, the Bible's full of that. Don't be that way. God loves the rich and God loves the poor. God loves the down and out and he loves the ones that are doing well. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what you're, if you're male or female. None of that matters. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Who are you going to listen to? Spirit of the world? Are you being divided? Only you can answer that. Or the Spirit of God. What about this? Not keeping your word with other your relationship. Go ahead. Upstairs? Go ahead. There you go. Honesty. That's what I wanted to say. I want to tell you a story about someone who I love dearly, and this is years ago. He, I can't remember exactly what he did. He either borrowed money to buy a car or he, was, he, he, was, he, or he bought a car from a brother. And after a while, he stopped paying for it. And here's what he said. He has so much money. He doesn't need me to pay, repay him. And, I, you know, it, it's a long time ago. And I was just like, I didn't know what to say. I know what I'd say now. But at that point, I was just, I was just shocked. I mean, and it may be true. That guy might have had a lot of money. But what does that have to do with anything? That's the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world looks at you and he divides you up and says, oh, that guy has a lot of money and I'll borrow money from him and I won't pay him back. Because he doesn't need the money. And I do. That's that's the way. I deserve this. Spirit of the world. Spirit of God. And there's lots of passages we can go to. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. If you say I'm going to borrow money from you, you pay it back. If it takes you 15 years, you pay it back. Whatever it is, the Spirit of God says let your yes be yes, your no, no. If you're going to borrow money from people, then you make sure you pay them back. We can go on and on. Etc. is my next one. Grumbling and complaining. Yeah, we do that. We grumble, we complain. What does the Word of God say about that? Yeah, <laughs> don't. <laughs> Count your blessings. Look at all these passages. The Spirit of God speaks. You know it. All right? Gossip. What does God talk, say about God? What does God say about your marriage? How are you supposed to live in your marriage? What, is the, what does the Spirit of God say? The, the Spirit of the world says, ah, you can manipulate your wife, you can manipulate your husband, blah, 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 and you know, all this. And the Spirit of God says, what? Children. Let me just let me mention this one real quick. Teenagers, young people. The spirit of the world says, and it teaches you through movies and television and your friends, says your parents don't know what they're talking about. You're smarter than them. It's time to rebel against them. It's time to disobey. Do your own thing. That's the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world is calling to you. Do what you want. 
You're smarter than they are. The Spirit of God says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, some of you have parents that you have to disobey because what they're telling you is not in the Lord. I understand that. But you know, he says, if you're having a hard time obeying your parents right now, especially if you're living at home with them, who are you listening to? You're going to listen to the spirit of the world. You're going to listen to the spirit of God. Parents. Parents, there's a, there's a saying that we used to think was in the Bible. It goes like this. Children are to be seen and not heard. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> the Bible says fathers do not exasperate your children. Who are you going to listen to? And we could, et cetera, et cetera. All you, you see what I'm saying? The whole Bible just continues. How do, when do you test the Spirit? Right now. Because we're eight minutes over. And be patient and kind. Do not grumble or complain. <laughs> and we're not talking about quoting the Bible in a religious way. We're talking about putting God's Word into practice. Allowing God's, the Spirit of God to work within us. To change our attitudes, to change our language, to change our demeanor, to change our actions, to mature and become like Him. And the only way we can do that is by testing the Spirit. When you are being called by the world to live a certain way, and you are called every moment to live a certain way, test the spirits. Is this what God is calling me to do? Let's read this paraphrase. Loved ones of God, don't believe every teaching or teacher. Don't place your faith in the popular direction of the world, in the popular direction the world takes you. Put those things to the test. Check it all out to see if it's God's directive or the world's directive. False teachers and ideas abound. There are a dime a dozen, and you'll find them in every nook and cranny in this world. Let me give you Galatians 5. Same concept. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. I've said it before. I've got to stop there and say it again. The sinful nature is your, your body. Some say it's flesh. It's what your flesh is telling you to do. It's the feelings of the flesh. You've crucified those feelings that rise up within you with its passions and desires. Why? Since we live by the Spirit, that's keeping step with the Spirit. And we do that by immersing ourselves in the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, changing our lives as we see that it comes in conflict with the Word of God, and you're keeping in step with the Spirit. If you're outside of Christ, come on in. We'd love, to, we'd love for you to be a part of us because it's a place where people who are struggling and learning and living are saved. That's, that's the only difference. We're saved. God has washed our sins away. He's taken us. He's, when we turn from our own life and we were immersed into Him, we rise to walk a new life. And that's the new life we're walking right now. And there's hope there. There's great hope there. We invite you to be a part of that. If, you need, if you're a Christian and you need to express anything to the elders, uh, they'll be here as we stand and as we sing.